0: Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Amy travels all over the world sharing about Jesus. She has written numerous books, all of which I highly recommend, and we are so thrilled to have you with us this morning. Let's give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Um, if you have your Bibles or your Bible on a phone, I'd love you to get the book of Daniel out. And we're going to be thinking together for a few moments um, Looking at this question, actually, of the spiritual battle, it's, it's interesting how much of the worship and the prophecies that have happened already this morning have been around that. And thinking about um, a question, a question, how might an enemy go about taking you out? How would someone go about that? Last year, um, one of our students at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, that's where I work, came to Oxford from northern Nigeria. He was a Christian journalist working with CNN, and he broke the Boko Haram story. So I don't know if any of you are still praying into that situation of those girls who were taken, and it's consistently happening. He's also ordained as a minister and is a really gifted evangelist, and um, he's, he's called Hassan. Loads of people have come to know Jesus through Hassan, and his work has really annoyed the leadership of Boko Haram, And so as a result, there is a price on his head. The price amounts to about 500 pounds, a bounty. In other words, if anyone can kill Hassan, they will get 500 quid. When he preaches, graffiti appears to the place that they know he's coming, they know the sort of general vicinity, graffiti like, Hassan John, we will meet one day very soon. He lives under a very high threat level. I was with him um, three weeks ago. We had a gathering of our African team, um, uh, three days of prayer, which is indescribable. The only way I can describe it is at one point at sort of lunchtime, one of the younger team uh, turned to me and said, do you think we should crawl out of here for lunch? It was just amazing, um, intense prayer for the continent. And Hassan was sharing that a death squad two weeks earlier had been um, sent to kill him and they missed him by three minutes. He escaped with his life. It was actually in the British press because Baroness Cox was with him. As Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we're living for a heavenly kingdom of truth, righteousness, justice, goodness. The forgiveness of Jesus, his presence, his power, his kingdom. But we live here. We live on earth. We live in a space that is contested. We live in a place where there's another empire that has another set of values. And wherever we are, whether it's in our local community, whether we're working in government, in law, in the university, or maybe in sales, wherever we are, we long to see that peace, that mercy, that justice, truth, and power of Jesus' kingdom. But we're contested where we are. Now, for someone like Hassan, it's easy to recognize the tactics of the empire seeking to contest him. But what about for you and for me? Are we equipped in the spiritual battle to resist and to flourish in the here and now? And I think there are some lessons for us in the book and life of Daniel recorded for us. We get an insight into, if you like, the empire's sort of tactical playbook, which is quite similar to what we face today. But we also see keys, tools, ways of doing things that enable Daniel and I think can help us to flourish significantly in the spiritual battle. So we're going to think for a few moments about the context of life under an empire. What's it like to live under an empire? Well, with regard to Daniel, ancient sources tell us that it was the policy of the extraordinarily successful, King King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian um, empire, not just to conquer other territories and put people in prison and kill and maim and destroy, but what he did was to select, identify, and then transport the intellectual and physical elite of the young from that place and bring them to the heart of the empire to serve the empire. And Daniel and his friends were chosen on that basis. If you look in chapter one, you see, on the basis of their looks and their abilities, they were taken from their parents, their society, their culture. They weren't imprisoned. They weren't put in jail. They joined the international elite of a student body, in Babylon, party central, one of the most sophisticated cities on earth. It was a huge city covering two and a half thousand acres with amazing buildings, staggering libraries, um, top flight fashion, temples that would just set you in kind of awe, beautiful gardens which are still written of in literature today, amazing food. The Greek author Herodotus described seeing Babylon and said the beauty of the architecture surpassed the splendor of any city he'd ever seen. And it was a city of idols dominated by idols, the gates of Nabu, the temple of Bel and Ishtar. And the idea was that these young people, these young elites for three years were drenched in the literature, the language, the culture of Babylon, so that instead of being from their other culture and having another agenda, they would now serve the empire. They would be utterly subjugated and set to work for this other empire. Imagine being 16 years old from an absolutely parochial place kind of place and facing this incredible onslaught. It would have been a three-year education in a philosophy of a kind of materialism. Not unlike the dominant worldview that young people face today in the West, Daniel was taught that matter and the physical realm are what is. There is no creator. There is no authority beyond us. There is only the physical world. And in fact, the Babylonians believed that their idols, the gods, were kind of products of that physical world. They didn't have any kind of authority or power to intervene or rescue or do anything supernatural. Daniel was 16. His people, his parents, his culture were defeated. His God must have seemed defeated. And in that context, Daniel and his friends flourished. They were able to resist. And it's interesting that their point of resistance was on what the culture valued the most, looks and wisdom. And we see that, that sort of um, theme throughout the book. And if you go and read it and do a Bible study yourself, you'll see that coming out. Daniel resisted. He protested. He said, I'm not going to eat that food. And you see, if if we look worse, those of us who resist, you see on your own terms, if we can stand before the king and we can pass his exam of whether we've studied all the literature, and if we look okay, then our God will have vindicated us. And on the terms which the Empire valued, Daniel resisted, And he was then found to be 10 times better than anyone else. The 16-year-old exile from nowhere, indoctrinated for three years by the most powerful empire on earth to disbelieve in his God, to embrace materialism, to embrace the kind of party lifestyle of this vibrant, exciting city, Instead, trusted God, and his name has outlived the whole Babylonian empire. The enemy tactic failed. But here's my question this morning. Is it working on you? Is it working on you? Do you hear the push of our culture? Only silly, naive, superstitious suggestible people believe in God. Christianity isn't for the successful, it's for the weak minded. This starts early. Um, Bill said that I have three boys and that my older two are twins. And when they were nine, we were driving to a tennis tournament. They're mad about tennis. And we were having a conversation about school and how things were going. And uh, one of them in the front um, said, oh, well, at school, you know, we've got into a bit of a, an argument because one of our friends said that only stupid people believe in things they can't see. And uh, he said, Mommy, that was really, really super mean because they know that we believe in God and Jesus and he was really getting at us. So I said, well, what did you say? And Zach, my son, who's always been... Very philosophical, has asked bizarre questions since he could speak. said, oh, I said, can you see my thoughts? (laughs) I said, well, what did he say to that? He said he didn't have an answer. So he just kept (laughs) repeating what he said in the first place. Only stupid people believe in things they can't see. You believe in God, therefore you're stupid. My other twin in the background piped up and said, It was so mean. But don't worry, mummy. We told him all about the fine-tuning of the universe and how the fundamental constants underpinning life are so finely tuned that they couldn't have come about by chance. The complexity of the universe points to a designer. Thank God for our youth worker at the (laughs) Minster is all I can say, because I definitely haven't told them about the fine-tuning of the universe. (laughs) The Empire's tactic is to undermine your confidence in the reality of God, to leave you doubting, to suggest to you that really, what you should do is don't waste your life on this prayer stuff. Don't waste your life. Don't wait. This is what Nietzsche said as well. Don't waste your life following something that's going to cost you. And Christianity will cost you. It will cost you everything. Embrace materialism. Live for now. Eat, drink, be merry. That's the context. How am I doing for time? Hurry up. Okay, the next thing we see the empire do is to seek to take these young men who had resisted and to change their names to get them to conform. Daniel and his friends had amazing names. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Remember, the Babylonian worldview says there's no judge, there's no moral authority outside of the material world. So Daniel's name was a prophetic challenge to that empire, and they wanted to change it. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Not only is God the reference point for morality, but he intervenes in the material world that he's made, and he intervenes with grace. Powerful to a culture that worships idols, that's subjugated, fearful, fearful of retribution, under superstition. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means the Lord helps. The empire changed those names. Daniel was changed to Belteshazzar, which means may the idol, Bel, protect his life. Hananiah is changed to Shadrach, which means he's at the, at the command of the idol Aku. He was the moon god. Mishael was changed to Meshach, which meant who is what the idol Aku is. And Abednego was changed to be, uh, Abednego's name meant the servant of Nabu, Azariah to Abednego. This was an attempt to wipe out their individuality, to wipe out the truth that was spoken through their names and their destiny, and to conform them to the dominant culture. And this was straight out of the playbook of Babylon. Regimes and empires have always done this. In apartheid South Africa school teachers would give western names to children and refuse to call them by their given names rolihlahla mandela was 9 years old when his primary school teacher decided he was now going to be known as nelson his his Kosa name meant the one who pulls the branch of the tree it meant he was going to be a troublemaker who would shake Systems. Interesting. Teachers could not or would not learn his name. The school system, the empire, renamed him. Perhaps it's more subtle in our context here. The institution, the school maybe you were sent to, decided you're a troublemaker and that label sticks with you and you will forever feel like an outsider. Or perhaps you ask a lot of questions and so you're labeled as awkward. You're a doubter. You're not a true believer. You're not really one of us. Or the visual template of the empire is very particular and you don't conform. You're a reject. And so you continually live under a sinking feeling that you will never make the cut on the basis of how you look. Or you're a senior manager or a director who happens to be female, and therefore, you are bossy, pushy, shrill, and not really feminine. Or perhaps racial slurs. I was talking to a friend of mine um, who's an incredibly successful black British woman, and she was describing this scenario. You're a person of color. Therefore, your main male child will be considered and suspected of being disruptive in class. You just live with that. Or perhaps you're female, therefore you are a sex object. Or you're single and you're celibate, so you must be repressed, self-hating or unlovable. The empire wants to put labels on us. The empire wants us nameless, subjugated, branded, confused about who we are. And I suggest to you this morning that even as Christians, there isn't a single one of us that isn't in some way damaged by those tactics of the empire. But God knows your name. He gives you a significance that has eternal value. The Bible says that your name, if you trust in him, if you come to him, is written on his hand. He knows you. However small you feel, however forgotten you feel, he has a purpose for you. However imposing the empire you live under, you belong to a different kingdom. Don't let the enemy steal your name. God knows your name. He knows his purpose for you. He has adventure, flourishing, good things for you. One of my colleagues um, in the ministry is a guy called John Bechtel, and a number of years ago, um, he had the opportunity and vision to buy a multi-million pound orphanage and turn it into a camp, a center for for training evangelists. It was in Hong Kong, but with his eyes on China. And uh, Billy Graham came through Hong Kong, and there was a very wealthy businessman traveling with him. And this guy was impressed with John's vision and what he heard. So he said to John, I will spend three months in America raising the money for this dream. You go ahead and make all the deals. So three months later, the plans were laid, the money was needed, and John received a letter saying that this man hadn't actually been successful in raising the funds. And there was a PS. He said... Um, Enclosed is a letter from a young girl. She'd heard about the vision. She was 12 years old. Her name was Melinda Holmes. As John opened the letter, he felt a prompting of the Holy Spirit that this was going to be significant. He read in the letter, here is my ice cream money for two weeks. Use it to buy the camp. John knew he was hearing God's voice, but he felt really angry. He felt really angry with the man, angry with the Lord. But he felt prompted I've got to go to this meeting with, these, with the board who own this thing and take this letter and make this as the offer. So he went to the chairman of the board and said, We've, uh, we've got the money. And the guy said, uh, What bank is it in? And John said, I've got it in cash. The man looked very worried because there was no briefcase. And John passed the letter over the table and he said, please show this letter and what's enclosed to your board. The man explained, this is four acres of real estate, prime real estate in Hong Kong with buildings on it and it's worth millions. But he promised he'd pass the letter on. A few days later, the call came that the land was theirs for the faith and $1 of a 12-year-old called Melinda. Six years later, John was speaking in a church in America and he told the story. He's dined out on this story for years, I can tell you. He told the story and an 18-year-old came up to him and she said, I'm Melinda Holmes, that $1 was mine. Since the camp was bought, 1.7 million young people have been through that camp. Over 160,000 have accepted Christ. 130 churches have been planted from there. And a movement to resource the underground churches in China all happens from there. But hardly anyone knows Melinda Holmes's name. However small, insignificant we feel, God knows our name. He has beautiful plans for us to be part of. The empire sought to crush Daniel and his friends and to take their names don't let that happen to you. Let's, let's resist that impulse of the empire. Thirdly and lastly, the next tactic we see is um, comes in chapter two, and it's to crush Daniel and his friends with an impossible, unfulfill, unfulfillable expectation. Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. He's surrounded by advisors and mediums. And it seems that he suspects that they're not quite as powerful as they're letting on. And so he says to them, I want you to both tell me what the dream I had was and then interpret it. Or you're going to be killed. The mediums try everything to get the dream out of him. They say, oh, well, why don't you tell us the dream and then, then we'll interpret it for you. Um, but it doesn't work. Ne- uh, Nebuchadnezzar is on to, to onto them. So what do Daniel and his friends do? They're facing death. They're facing the threat of unfulfillable, unrealizable expe- expectations. What do they do? Chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They got together as a group of friends and they prayed. In other words, rocket science, it is not. How do we resist the empire? We get together with friends and pray. And that's how Bill and, and I and Frog, that's how we got to know each other and then Nikki as well. The first thing we do is pray. We need mission strategies. We need preaching. We need apologetics that can resist the empire. We need faithful public worship. But resistance to the empire begins in prayer. And it's amazing how matter-of-fact the text is connecting the turning around of this situation, which ends up with Nebuchadnezzar issuing a decree to the whole empire that there is only one God, and he's actually real, and he's the God of Israel. We don't have time to look at that. But the whole thing is connected to, to, to young people getting together as friends and praying God Himself is found in their prayer. You see that through the prayer of Daniel. You see this extraordinary insight into the wisdom and the power of God. If you look later um, when you go home, maybe read it from verse um, 20 23 to 24. This amazing prayer. God himself is found. But ultimately, the situation is turned around, and it leads to extraordinary flourishing of God's people. It's really simple. As you live your life, don't lose that habit of getting together with friends to pray. Every work of God that I've ever experienced has begun exactly like that, with just a small group of us praying Whether, as Bill mentioned, whether it was taking Bibles into the military headquarters of the Taliban. That began as a small group of students prayed on the Great Wall of China. And God showed us that this was meant to happen. Or the thing he wanted me to mention, the opportunity to preach the gospel to the grand imam of Pakistan. who leads the largest mosque in Lahore whose father before him was the Grand Mufti of Pakistan. Why was he there? It was in a different country. Prayer of local Christians for his wife. His wife had been diagnosed with cancer. They heard about this diagnosis. They got in touch and asked, can we come and pray for you in Jesus' name? They did, and she was healed. And they knew it was Jesus. Jesus. And so he determined, next time I'm out of the country, I'm going to attend a church service. And it happened to be a service in a different Asian country, and I'd been asked to preach the gospel on Sunday morning, and there he was in the front row. That all happened because of prayer. or 30 gang members turning to Christ in Peckham in one night, delivered from another gang, chasing them with machetes. It all happened as three of us were in our boiler room in our church on our knees praying at the end of a mission week or the prayer group that met in the west wing of the White House and decided I wonder if we could put on an evangelistic event in our workplace for our colleagues and they did and I had the privilege of being the speaker seeing God open amazing doors for the gospel where they worked. Or the establishing of the OCCA that began as two couples in our 20s prayed as we walked in Magdalen College Deer Park in Oxford, and God gave us a vision simultaneously of an evangelistic centre that would touch the world. Or Frog and I just praying on our own while we were on sabbatical in America, and the dream of planting a church on a threshing floor on the outskirts of London, surrounded by fruit trees came simultaneously to us the minster church that i'm now part of meets on the threshing floor of an 11th century farm in beaconsfield that has 40 acres of fruit trees around it the trials and difficulties are real but let's get together and pray just as we are with our friends The promise of the adventurous, courageous life with God in the midst of a rival empire isn't nothing bad's ever going to happen to you, but it is do, pray, trust, lean on the Father, draw nourishment and nurture from him in prayer. And despite the fire, the threats, the lions, we read at the end of the book of Daniel that no wound was found on him. Despite the might and the brilliance and the sophistication of the empire, Daniel outlives it. Despite his name being taken away, his name is actually established. His purpose was clear and here we are today, thousands of years later, talking about him. The enemy's tactics haven't changed that much, but neither has the Lord who delivered Daniel. Do you need to hear that word of encouragement this morning to flourish in the land of another empire? Don't believe the lie that atheism or idolatry are superior. Resist the impetus of the empire to subjugate you, to impose a name on you that will shape you and take you out of God's adventure for you. Gather together with your friends and pray. So this morning, hear that strengthening word of the Father who calls you and gives you the grace to flourish, even in this empire, to flourish for his kingdom here on earth. Amen.